Thanks. <laughs> Good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be picking up at verse 26. And as you're turning there, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along. And there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. If there isn't, if you'll raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. Anybody need a Bible? Everybody good? Good. We had our baptism last Sunday afternoon, and it was just a total blessing. God just did a, a great work. It was our uh, 19th year anniversary, and we're just looking forward to what the Lord wants to do in the next 19 years. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 26, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. It says, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no, or there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but certain fearful expectations of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose that he who thought worthy to... Um, he who thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, continued the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so, Father, we just thank you that you are gracious and merciful, but Lord, you do not overlook sin. And so, Father, I just pray that through your word that we would peer deep into our hearts so that we know that we are right with you and that, Father, you would be glorified through our lives. So right now, once again, teach us and instruct us. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been examining two questions out of this section of Scripture which are essential for everybody who considers themselves to be a Christian to be able to answer. This is a personal, a personal snapshot where you're at with your relationship with the Lord so that you would know that you've taken the proper direction, that you would consider your walk. And in your walk, the questions that I asked are, are you holding fast to your faith or are you slipping away? We saw in verses 19 through 25, it's an encouragement to continue to hold fast to faith. In verses 26 through to the end of the chapter, it's a warning against those who are slipping away. Why is this so important? Because everybody here right now is either holding fast to faith or they're slipping away. Holding fast are those people who are born again and they know it and excited and moving forth in their faith. Those who are slipping away, well, what we'll see here today is it's not that this is a born-again believer who isn't living a godly life. This is somebody who, in fact, thinks that they're saved, and they were into the church, they were partaking of the truth, but then they kind of wandered off. And we see the warning of judgment that is there. These are people who are not born again. And so let me ask you, and this is a commonality within the church, if I'm walking down the street and you're passing me and we don't know each other, and as you're walking by, I'll say, hey, hold on a minute. You look like somebody who's got a God-shaped hole in your heart, and I got that which can fill it. But you need to just stop and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that person says, okay, well, I don't want a God-shaped hole in my heart, so okay, I'll do that. Repeat a prayer after me. And I go through the sinner's prayer, and they say, okay, I did it. And I go, okay, you're saved. All right. And he starts walking down the street. And okay, I'll see you here, there, or up in the air. God bless you. Was that person really saved? I mean, so many people base their salvation on that. And that person, as they walk away, never grows in the knowledge of the Lord and never really thinks about it other than, well, that guy said I'm going to heaven, so I must be going to heaven. And it's just the same for everybody who bases their salvation because they just repeated a prayer, just because they walked down an aisle, and they think they did something for their eternal security, when actuality the only thing they did was make themselves accountable before a holy God. In order to truly be a Christian, you, this is what Jesus said, you must be born again. 
It's not about what church or denomination that you go to. It's about that change that occurred in your life. Now that transaction between two people walking down the street, I'm not saying that a person can't just get saved like that. It's all up to the Lord, without a doubt. But there's got to be a change. Because if you're born again, then you're not who you used to be. You're now a new creation in Christ. And so if you raised a hand, walked down an aisle, whatever, but you're just kind of skating through, was there a change? Looking at your life, is that who you used to be and this is who you are now? And the writer of Hebrews, he's encouraging these people so that they would know that these things are true, that they would know that they're born again, that there's been a change so that they understand that they're in Christ. And so it's going to be looking at these people slipping away who at one point were right there. They went up to the very threshold of the, of the truth, of salvation, but they kind of wandered off. And unfortunately, we all know people in the church. People maybe we invited and they got all excited, but then all of a sudden they're no longer here. And usually it's a kind of a slow, slippery slope. It's, they're sporadic, and then they're not here anymore. And then it's, hey, whatever happened to so-and-so? And -and so-and-so just wants absolutely nothing to do with the Lord. And then we'll say, well, at least they got born again by the time when they were here. Well, were they really born again? And and I can't judge anybody else. I I don't know who is saved and who is unsaved. There's been some people that have this outward appearance of salvation that aren't. And there's been some people that you kind of wonder and probably are. It's not for me to make a determination into somebody else's life. It's to me to look in the mirror and to know that I'm in the faith, that I would examine my life and I know that I'm with Christ, not based upon just some kind of formula, but based upon the reality that I've heard the word of God, that I realized that I was a sinner, that I repented of my sins, and I came to Christ, I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and now I see that outwardly changed life. The church, I've been told, is full of hypocrites, and it definitely is. There's no doubt about it. But as one of the chief hypocrites, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. Sometimes I do, hypocrite play actor. Sometimes I do that. But, Lord, I want to walk a strong Christian life. I want to live my life in Christ so that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, to the best of my ability, that I'm right with the Lord. Because it's then when I have that confidence, then I'm able to share the Lord or reflect Jesus Christ into the lives of those who are, who are slipping away, to those who have never even come to the truth. So we're looking at once again at these earmarks of those who are holding fast. We've pretty much seen that, and we're going to go into depth in that as we get into chapter 11. But today we're going to be finishing this chapter looking at those who are slipping away. So if you are maturing in your Christian life, you're in the process of holding fast. Maybe not holding imperfection because there's not a person here who is perfect, but nonetheless have a desire to grasp onto my faith, to cling to Christ, and to move forward in my Christian life. But then there are those who are either staying static as they were before they were saved or in a state of regression. It would be those who are slipping away. So each of us needs to ask ourselves, which is it? Which is it? Which is it that you are doing? Are you holding fast? Are you progressing in your Christian life? Or are you in the process of slipping away? And so to hold fast, to grasp onto the faith in which Christ Jesus has grasped onto you. He's got reason and purpose in your life. And so what I would ask you is, are you fulfilling Christ's desire in your life? And I can't define what that is in detail. You need to pray to the Lord and ask the Lord not only that he would reveal that to you, but in fact that you would follow through in it. But as far as those who are slipping away, well, you need to recognize that you are, and you need to repent, and you need to get back to doing the very first things of faith. To realize, yeah, that day when I supposedly made that outward profession of faith, in actuality, I was just buying fire insurance from hell. The person basically told me that if I said this prayer or did this or did that, that I wasn't going to hell. Well, the Bible's not about not going to hell. The Bible's about coming to Jesus Christ. 
The Bible's not about no longer living a worldly life, although we're not too. But the Bible's all about coming into the Christian life and reflecting Jesus Christ. The Bible is all about being proactive. It's all about pushing forward and reaching forward to that higher calling in Christ Jesus. Anything else is either staying static or slipping away. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 13, He who endures to the end shall be saved. He who continues pushing forward to the end of their life or to the end of the church age, that person has an assurance of their salvation. And so, what does it mean to endure in your faith? It's to hold fast to faith. It is to continue on in faith and realizing the magnitude of your faith and seeing faith within your life. That's why after we finish here in chapter 10, when we go into chapter 11, you're going to see those of the past who did some amazing things. And we'll look at their lives and we'll see that they're anything but perfect. But the fact of the matter is why they're recognized even today is because they move forward in what God had called them to do. Now, upon the presentation of the gospel, there are two true reactions. Those who believe and are saved and those who reject and are lost. Now, the lost can be pretenders. In Matthew chapter 13, it speaks of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Wheat and tares are almost indis... You can't distinguish between the two. Not until it comes time for them to bear their fruit. It's then that they're recognized for what they are. A tear, it's going to produce thorns. Wheat will produce that which is beneficial for life. And the Lord says, hold on until we see the fruit that is bore. It's then that we'll make the, the, the distinction between the two. And so those who can be lost can definitely be pretenders, but the saved is always going to be a contender. They'll always realize the magnitude of grace, of the, the grace of God that has been given to them and what the Lord has done and continues to do. It's the grace of God and it's the love of God that, that inspires us in this great work of ministry because you realize how unworthy you are and you realize just as others are unworthy, but God is there with his hand open to them, just as it was to you. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they had been of us, they would have, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were with us. So sooner or later, in your Christian life, it's going to be revealed where you are at with Christ. You, you, again, when you look at those lives who, who no longer continue, it needs to be something that, that breaks our heart. But it also needs to be something that we consider ourselves, that we will continue on in that road to Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not speaking about losing salvation. I'm talking about those who were never really saved. Those who maybe thought they were saved, or at least were able to convince others that they were saved, but in actuality, they're not, nor were they ever. Case in point, Judas, he experienced all that Jesus had to give. He experienced the love, he experienced the grace, and just think of the magnitude of truth that Judas experienced. He was called an apostle. He was numbered amongst the apostles. When you saw Judas, you would think, there's one of the Lord's disciples. Even more than that, there's one of the Lord's apostles. Now, I want to kind of join together what the apostle John had to say. And at the end, I want to equate it to Judas. In John, I'm sorry, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, That which was from the beginning, he's speaking of the Lord, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. But with Judas, it's that which we have seen and heard, we've rejected. We've rejected. We've rejected through our words we've rejected through our deeds we rejected through our mannerisms if you look at the life of judas you would think well for the most part he's doing pretty good well you know now he's got his hand in the till he's doing this and doing that there's some signs there that maybe things aren't aren't so well and what did he do just before the end of his life he fully ultimately rejected jesus christ to his own detriment 
Now, this is an example that we would learn from him as well. And life, life and death, it's in the midst of the hardship of both that true faith is really exposed as we go through hardship within our lives, but how much more so at the door of death is the reality of our profession of faith. Judas, his name was even praised, but in the end he did what all of those who slip away do. In John thirteen thirty, having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. He went out into the outer darkness. That closing picture of Judas going away from Jesus into outer darkness, seeking his own way. John MacArthur said, There are people who move toward Christ, right up to the edge of saving belief. They hear him and are drawn to him. They are perhaps deeply convicted of sin and even make a profession of faith. But their interest is in the things of God, or their interest in the things of God begins to wane. And the pressures and the attractions of the world distract them further still until they have no interest at all. They may turn to another religion or to no religion at all. Apostasy or a slipping away is determined by what you leave, not where you go after you leave. After a person leaves God, it makes little difference where he then goes. And so again, the church, we've got to consider these things. We've been looking in the evening services. I don't remember if it was Second uh, Kings or Jeremiah. I think it was Jeremiah. We looked at the book of Revelation. And in chapter 1 in the book of Revelation, you have an introduction to Jesus Christ. But in chapters 2 and chapter 3, it sets the standard for the rest of the book. In chapter 2 and chapter 3 are those seven letters to seven churches. Five of those churches were goat churches. Five or Two of those churches were sheep churches. Two were doing well with the Lord. Five were, well, there was a direct warning. So I'd have to ask you then, to who was the book of Revelation written to? It was written to those people who are in a church who think they're right with God, but in fact are not right with God. And the warnings that are given to those five goat churches is to repent is to do the first works, is to get right with Jesus Christ, or the warning is you're going to go through what is about to be told you in the following pages, and we know that to be the Great Tribulation. And who is it that goes into the Great Tribulation? Unbelievers. And so there's the warnings that are directed towards churches of those people who are sitting there, but they're held accountable because they have the information. But what did they do? They rejected the information. They rejected a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that, judgment came upon them. So just because you're sitting in a church, just because you read a Bible, just because you hear Bible studies, doesn't mean that you're right with Christ. It means you're accountable before Jesus Christ. And so, again, the Spirit, well, he has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church and what the Spirit had to say to the church. And it's those people within the church who aren't right with Christ is to repent because the book of Revelation was not written to unbelievers because unbelievers, I mean those just of the world, because they don't read the Word of God. And now it's going to happen to them, and I hope they do take the warning that is given from it, but how much more so are the people who are sitting in church services but aren't right with God? So today, the last of the three-part series, if you find yourself or fear that you may be slipping away, what we're going to do today is we're going to use a three-part checklist, a two-part exhortation, and then a single truth. So first, this three-part checklist of what you'll see if you are slipping down the slippery slopes of apostasy. First of all, in everyone's life who has slipped away from saving faith, there at some point was the recognition of the truth. Now, a slipping away or apostasy, it's what it literally means. You have to move from something. And so at one point, there was the realization of the truth but there was the moving from the truth. That is not a recognition of an existence of truth, but an acknowledgement of the gospel as truth. Look at verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now notice he says we here. He's speaking to Jews who are in Jerusalem, but he's speaking to those who are in the church. 
And so once again, the writer of Hebrews is speaking for the church's consideration for each individual that they know. And so the idea here is is that they're acknowledging this is good news. They're acknowledging that Jesus Christ did die. They're acknowledging the existence of sinners. But somewhere along the line, they're never entering into the reality of it. It sounds like a good idea, and they're on the, the, the border of it, but they're just borderline believers not entering into the fullness of Christ. We're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, if any man is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new... He, he's a new I'm sorry, that's not Romans 1. <laughs> There's no con, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And my point here is, is those who are in Christ. The problem is very few people enter in to that relationship with Jesus Christ. That's entering into the totality of a relationship with Christ. And just to make some sort of outward profession of faith without the giving of your heart means absolutely nothing. Now, my wife and I, we got married June 28, 1980, 37 and a half years ago. And if you came up to me and said, How's your relationship with your wife? And I'd say, great. It was one of the happiest days of my life. We had a really good time. I can remember the day like it was yesterday. Well, how are you guys doing together after all these years? I don't know. I haven't seen her in 37 years. Well, are you still married? Yeah, we're still married. I made a profession of marriage to her. I made our wedding vows 37 years ago. And I really meant it. And I was up there and we were joined and the two had become one but you haven't seen her in 37 and a half years? Well, yeah, what's wrong with that? that, That's just weird. That makes no sense. You guys all laugh because it's kind of weird. But a lot of people are like that in their so-called Christian life. Yeah, I was at a Grey Glory event or Billy Graham or whoever it was, and they gave an invitation, and I walked down there and they said, welcome to the family of God. So I just assume I'm in the family of God. I did that, I can check that off my bucket list, and that was 37 years ago. Or do you go to church? I don't go to church, full of hypocrites. Well, at least you're honest about that, but it's also full of believers, and you're not attending it. Are you really a believer? You're not in the Word of God. Are you really a believer? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? I've been in denominations I've been in, in, in religion, but it wasn't until I was in a relationship with Jesus Christ that I understood the magnitude of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't then until I understood what grace was able to achieve in my life. Now, I can remember the time around the time when I was saved. I don't really look at it as that specific moment for me in my life. I think I was saved before I made the altar call. I think I was saved after I made the altar call. But I started learning, and these things started coming to me from the Lord. And I started adding this knowledge to my life, and I started to build something. And as I built something, at some point in my Christian life, I realized the surety of my salvation. Again, I'm not the kind of person that just tries something or gets in halfway. I'm going to be slow getting in. I'm going to want to understand. But once I make the determination to be in, I'm in. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And I came to understand what that meant. I I, I saw those who were in an organized religion, and I wanted absolutely nothing to do with that. I saw those who were in Christ, and I wanted everything to do with that. And I made it part of my life. Not in perfection, very imperfect person, without a doubt, but I've got the grace of God, and I have that confidence about my life, and you should have the same confidence in your Christian life as well. I can't pinpoint one specific moment, minute, hour, or whatever when I was changed, but I can look back at that time frame, and I can see before, and I can see after, and I know that something supernatural occurred at that time. I prayed for it. I see it biblically, scripturally, and I have experienced it, and it's that which I have depended my life upon. We see 
this pattern, though, in the churches today. Again, people who make a superficial commitment, and it's kind of a contradiction of terms, but are they really saved? And I'll tell you flat out, no. God's not about superficial. Do you think Jesus Christ was superficial when he was being beaten? Do you think Jesus Christ was superficial when he hung upon the cross? Do you think he was superficial when he died? He made a full commitment here. I mean, do you think, take it even back earlier, do you think he was superficial when he was even born, when he became incarnate? Why would God want to set aside elements of, 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 of his attributes of who he was to become a human being to enter in? Well, the only reason that he could possibly have a desire to do that is because he desired you. And, and he's the image of the invisible God. And it's the only way that mankind was ever really going to know and understand who God is. And, and so I need to see, based upon what Christ has done, I need to see that what, what my reaction is to be. Because again, just as surely as God didn't do anything halfway, how much more so do I need to be all in in Christ? And if I'm all in in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for a person who still sins. There's no condemnation for a person who does not live a perfect life. There's no condemnation for a person, and again, you can fill in the blank, that I have that assurance and I have that peace in my life that I am not going to be condemned. And it's the great difference between myself and I pray yourself and the world. The world, remember, Holy Spirit, John 16, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That means that the world, I don't care if they say they're an unbeliever, I don't care if they say they're an atheist, I don't care. Somebody who is not in Christ has these convictions. They're convicted of sin. They know that they are a sinner. They're convicted of sin righteousness. They know that there's the existence of God. That's why when you try to share God with them, they get mad at you. I mean, why would they get mad if he doesn't exist? And also of judgment that the world knows that they're going to have to grab for all the gusto they can in this life because they're going to be judged in some future time. Secondly, in everyone's life who has slipped away from saving faith, there is the knowledge that something is seriously wrong. I've seen people. I've run into them. I remember I ran into this one man at the golf course. I went over to hit golf balls one Saturday after being here at the church. And I go walking up to the clubhouse to get my golf balls. And this guy who used to come to our church comes walking out the door. And I'm just going to call him Harry. It's not his name, but I'm just going to call him Harry. And oh, and I see his eyes get really big. How you doing? And I'm not about to even say I'm just kind of glad to see Harry. How, how you doing? Oh, uh, uh, you know what? I've been meaning to go to church. And it's like, huh? I wasn't even talking about that yet anyway. And, but you can just see the conviction that is there. Something's seriously wrong. And if you don't believe, well, that, that's between you and the Lord. But why should just the appearance of me make any difference in your life whatsoever? And the only reason that it should is because this is true and you know it. This is right and you understand it. This is what God expects and you've rejected it. That's the only way. That, I mean, I can't tell you how many times something like that has happened. And, you know, you get the stuttering and stammering and, oh, uh, uh, and then the excuses come flowing. And I'm just thinking, you don't have to give an excuse to me. You give your excuses before God. Or like somebody who will use out somewhere and somebody will say a curse word. Oh, sorry, pastor. Like, I've never heard it before. I used to use a lot of them at one point. At least my wife did. It's, I always tell them, you don't have to worry about me. We worry about God. Don't apologize to me. Apologize. You're using his name in vain, not my name. And so the person who has slipped away, they understand that something is seriously wrong. Look at verses 27 and verse 29. It says, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Now I've joined verses 27 and first part of 29 together there. God does not desire that the wicked should die, but repent 
and turn from his sin. And so, as I said before, he sent the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment for those precise purposes. And so, the slipper, the slipper and slider, he senses in his spirit or in his personality that the Holy Spirit is leading him and the Holy Spirit is guiding him. God is jealous for those whom he desires. And when I say jealous, he's not jealous of them. He's jealous for them. He's wanting them to come into his family and enter completely into his family. It's one thing to ignore the gospel. It's quite another to acknowledge the gospel and to ignore the gospel. To sit in service and not hold fast to faith. Or just to slip away, to slip away out the door and never enter into godly fellowship. Again, the church, well, Peter says judgment needs to start at the house of God. And we must examine our lives so that we know if these things are sure, if these things are right, and these things are true. We see how the church throughout, well, throughout this nation, throughout the world... It's, its message, not that the message is diluted, but the church's message is diluted because the church has set his mind on big buildings and opulent surroundings. And that takes money, and money requires people. And so the church has, has compromised for the purpose of bringing in people. Bringing in people and gathering people and gathering big crowds for the purpose of whatever it might be under the guise of, well, at least they're hearing the truth. I spoke against some of the heretics that we've had on TV, and this lady was very angry with me, and she approached me and says, you ought not to do that. Those are godly people, and at least the name of Jesus is going out. Well, just for the name of Jesus to go out does absolutely no good. In Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 139, God said, I will honor my word even above my name because you will not know the name of God apart from the word of God. And unless the word of God goes out, then as far as if you call yourself a church, you have not accomplished or succeeded in anything in which a church is to do. I received a prayer from the internet. We, it, it says form submission in the title line, and I usually know that that means that somebody that doesn't go to our church or somebody that maybe even in our church but found our church's website from our um, from the internet is asking for a prayer. And this guy, his name, I won't even bring up his name in case he's watching and whatever. I don't want to single him out. But he says, I was a counselor for Harvest. And I, I saw these thousands of people that would come down. And, and I understood as I grew in my faith the necessity for recognizing that I'm a sinner and understanding that God's desire that I would repent of my sin and a lot of these people, now some of these people were very emotional and very genuine, but it says a lot of them were laughing and just going through these steps. They'd, and, you know, we'd give them Bibles, and they didn't really even want to hear what we had to, say, had to say. And then he says, and now I'm looking at my friends that are going to some of these bigger churches. And, and don't get me wrong, I shouldn't even say bigger churches. It can be big or small. But some of my friends who are going to these churches, and their lives, they're living their lives just as they've always lived their lives. There's no outward change. And his question to me is, what's going on? What's going on? And we need to look at the landscape of the church today and say, what's going on? And we need to look at this church today, and we need to say, what's going on? And we need to look at our lives, and we need to ask ourselves, what's going on? Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died to give me eternal life. If you came to church and I gave you a dollar, you would think, well, that's kind of weird. If I gave you 20 bucks, you'd probably say thanks. If I gave you 100 bucks, you'd be fairly excited. If I gave you a million dollars, you'd probably show up every week thinking maybe I'll give you another million, but you'd be excited. This is a great church. Well, how much more so God has he's given us eternal salvation? Do we understand the magnitude of what that means? Because see, apart from that, we're as we were, we're children of destruction. And there's the conviction that's there. And there's the knowledge that we're going to be judged. And we're going to have to stand before a holy God and give an account of ourselves. And we're going to be able to offer absolutely no excuse. For those who are holding fast to their faith as determined by the word of God, there's a surety. Yeah, you in the flesh at sometimes are going to have doubt without, without a doubt. 
but you can always go back to the Word of God and understand you know that you're doing what God has asked you and called you to do to the best of your ability. And so the areas that you fail, you just repent and you continue to move on. But those people who have slipped away, who have walked away, have absolutely no basis for any peace within their lives. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, Jesus speaks of this concept. In verse 20 it says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And so back then with Christ, a lot of people are doing what the church is doing today, or people within the church are doing today. They're in it for what they're able to get. Entertaining worship, good coffee bar, you know, comfortable building, whatever it might be, feel-good message. Well, that's what they're doing with Christ. They wanted to go see the mighty miracles. It was kind of a show. And in the feeding of the 5,000, they were oohed and awed that they came to this man and he fed everybody, and it was kind of an amazing thing. But what was Jesus doing? He was rebuking these people, rebuking the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They were into the wow factor, but they never really got the message. Verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Christ, and woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment, judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, now he's taken this to an extreme, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than you. Now to the Jewish mind, Sodom was the worst of the worst of the worst. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah and how they were judged? And Jesus is saying, you're worse. You're worse because you've seen. You're worse because you know. You're worse because you understand and still you reject. And we can think of the great privilege that we have because we've got the Bible. The great privilege that we have, and we do, because we have radio and we have internet. We have all of these avenues of the Word of God, but to whom much is given much is definitely expected. So keep in mind, this is Lord God Almighty. This is Lord God Almighty who holds your life in his hands, who because of the wounds on his hand, he worked the work of salvation so that you would not have to do that. This is God who sent his son and gave us his word so that you would know the reality and the truth of these matters. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with these things? These great privileges that we have living in this free country. I, God could say, I planted you in the United States of America as much as we still have it today, but we do. We have total religious freedom. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with these things that I have given you? The ability to read, the books, again, just all of these avenues of communication. God could say to the church, if this message is so great, if it's really hitting your heart, to the degree that you're at least pretending it is, what are you doing with these things? Thirdly, in everyone's life who has slipped away from saving faith, there is the rejection of God at some point. It's what it regresses to. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? Notice how the rejection of God is presented in the rejection of the totality of who God is. I've got three underlines in this section of Scripture in verses 28 through 29. I underlined Moses' law. I underlined the Son of God. And lastly, at the end of verse 29, I underlined the Spirit of grace. The idea here is this is the totality of who God is that man has rejected. Whenever we see an important, I shouldn't say whenever, but usually when we see an important theological point in the scriptures, a lot of the times the Holy Trinity is presented for the purpose of getting our attention towards that point. 
And so first we have, in Moses' law, we have a picture of the Father. To the Jewish mind, it's the God of the Old Testament. That is who they would refer to as the Father. It was the Father's law. This is the law of God that was delivered. Galatians 3.19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come of whom the promise was made. Later on in Galatians, Paul would say that it was our tutor. In our tutor, we know it's our tutor to teach us, to show us that we're sinners and we are in need of a Savior. It was the Son who received punishment from the Father because of our breaking of the law. And the Father is rejected. The Father is rejected when we reject the Word of God. Now, I'm not talking about the whole Word of God. I'm not even talking about the Gospel in this particular instance. But again, what was the purpose of the law? To show that we're sinners. And if we ignore the law, if we ignore the reality that we are sinners, we, in fact, have rejected the Father. Secondly, there is the rejection of the Son in verse 29 the first part of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? What set Jesus apart from all other sacrifices is that he was the Lamb of God who does not cover sin but does away with the sins of the world. And maybe the best visualization is through unbelief if you hold those communion elements in your hand, is just to dump them on the ground and just to stomp them into the ground. That's the whole idea of rejecting Christ, knowing who he is, but refusing to truly come to that place of belief. It's to cling to that 37-year-old commitment that you supposedly made as you recited some sort of prayer somewhere, raised a hand and walked down an aisle. But again, you've been stomping on Christ for all of those years through your manner of life and the way that you have lived. Underfoot, this means to have counted as no worth. To account Christ's death and his resurrection of absolutely no worth in your life. And then lastly, in verse 29, the last part of verse 29, it says, um, and insulted the spirit of grace. This is the rejection of the Holy Spirit. The idea here is, is that this is the ultimate in sinning. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject the gospel message. It's a sin that is only finalized upon your death because God gives you the totality of your life to come into that proper relationship with Jesus Christ. But to reject that relationship with Jesus Christ through to your final breath is to blasphemy the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit as he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment for the express purpose of leading you to Jesus Christ. Then we have a parenthetical warning given here in verses 30 through 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. When you fall into the hands of somebody, that means that you're guilty, that means that the other person is angry, and now you are under their submission. And so you need to understand that the book of Hebrews obviously is New Testament. And we can so draw distinctions between Old Testament and New Testament, judgment and grace. But judgment is part of the nature of who God is, and it is throughout the scriptures. And here we have these New Testament verses. First, we have an Old Testament included in the New Testament, but also verse 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. And God says, I will repay. I will repay you for your sins, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing. And I think fearful even downplays it. It should be a terrorizing thing. Because of the terror of the Lord, Paul said, we persuade men. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Those three things, those three things that we've been looking at, now we have a two-part exhortation. Look how verse 32 starts. But, but, and the idea here is, is but you. That means that the individual needs to consider this. 
But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Do you remember when you were first illuminated, when you first realized the light of the gospel of truth? Do you remember the struggle that existed? The flesh was warring against the spirit, and the spirit was warring against the flesh. There was that conflict in your psyche and in your body of, of what is going on here. Is you, you've always looked at those people in the church as these Jesus freaks, but now you realize there's an attraction to yourself and even this, this real necessity that you would enter into the body of Christ as well. And, and so we need to see the reality of this is just that, well, there's going to be that conflict, and that conflict, at least to me, and it should be to us all, that it just reminds us of the reality of the Word of God and the reality of, of God and who God is. But recall the former days, verse 32, in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who, so, who were so treated. And so he's talking about there was the sinful nature in that conflict, but also I became companions. I developed this relationship within the body of Christ. And I've come to realize that those who are true born-again believers really are brothers and sisters. And I can relate to what that means. And I can relate to the closeness of it. And I can relate to how it's okay to be myself and the joy that I find is my brothers and sisters are themselves and joy that we've all been set free in Christ and and this companionship that we really have, like-minded people for the same purpose. Right now, there's some football game, there's a bunch of football games going on, and I guarantee you, each and every person on those teams is wearing the same uniform. Well, our uniform, we've put on Jesus Christ. Not in perfection again. None of those football players are going to do their job perfect today. But not in perfection, but we're all on the same team. We all came in in the same way, and there needs to be that unifying factor because of that. Verse 34, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession of yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence which has great reward. Now he's encouraging these people to hold fast to faith. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Yet for a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. And the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Are you holding fast to faith, or are you slipping away? Everybody here is either holding fast to their faith or they're slipping away. And so the question needs to be asked, which one are you? You don't need to answer to me or anybody else in here. You need to answer that question to yourself. If you've been playing the charade just because you come to church and think you have security because of that, you don't. Or you've been, and again, you can fill in the blank, giving money, serving or whatever, but without that element of saving faith, saving faith and the assurance of your salvation, you're doing yourself a great disservice. And then lastly, the writer closes with a single truth, verse 39, but we, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. This writer, we don't know if it was Paul or whoever it might be, but he had that assurance, and that's the same assurance that you are able to have, that you are able to, to know and know that you are truly born again. Examine your life. Know these things. And when you come to the, to the realization that you are, embrace them and hold on to them for all that you're worth. You're worth. If you come to the realization that, you know what, I'm slipping away or maybe I've never really been there or whatever, you need to pray. You need to repent and ask God to forgiveness and enter into a Christian life. I'll be in the back after service. If you want to pray with me, you can pray by yourself because this is a work of God. And when God has done a work, he gives you the assurance of the work that he has done. It's no more play acting, no more hypocrisy when it comes to salvation, but it's the reality of a right relationship with Jesus Christ. When the church realizes it and embraces it, the church then is a mighty tool in the hand of God. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, that you have given us these assurances. 
And I just pray, Father, for every person in here. I pray for myself that we consider the things that were said, the things that your word tells us, that, Father, we would know where we're at with you, that, Lord, we would know that we're saved if, in fact, we truly are saved, and it would be based upon a work that you have done, not based upon anything else, that it would be based upon your word and not based upon what anybody else has said, and that, Father, as we embrace these things, we would just have that surety that we would have peace in the midst of tribulation and all that the world has to offer. And so once again, Father, we just thank you that you have given us your word. We just pray, Father, that you would make it personal to each person here, that, Lord, we would consider throughout this week to come the things that were said, re-examining the section of Scripture even on our own and allowing these things to come to fruition within our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You all stand, please. Tonight we're going to be in 2 Kings, tonight at 6 o'clock. If you noticed in the bulletin this year, we're going to be having a Hosanna night. Hosanna night is a Halloween alternative. Um, It's going to be a thing for our kids, but the idea is to have an outreach. We're going to be having door hangers. We'll send mailers out, but just to get the word out because the gospel is going to be presented that night as well. Also, we're going to be... We have an opportunity to go with Calvary Chapel Chino Valley to Israel. Some people have already signed up. We're going to be having an interest meeting a week from today. It'll be in the high school room. Um, Even if you've just had an interest in Israel, maybe you can't make it this time. We've had a lot of people that approached myself and my wife, so we're thinking maybe in 2019 we'll have an opportunity, maybe 2018 late, but probably 2019 We'll uh, revisit Israel again and see who wants to come or who's able to come. But I'm going to be giving a presentation um, this coming Sunday, a week from today, on the trip that my wife and I had gone to. So you can see what's involved in a trip to Israel. Uh, Very valuable in making the scriptures come alive. Now keep in mind, faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. So the Bible is what's essential. But Israel, Israel gives us great understanding and insight into the Word of God and the logistics of the Scriptures. Something very valuable. God bless you guys. Have a great week.